2 Thessalonians chapter 2, the first 12 verses. Uh, follow with me as I read and we'll pray and we'll get into it together. This is Paul writing. He says, Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And now you know what is, what is restraining, and that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they, they should believe the lie, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. And Father, as we look at a very heavy portion of your word, we pray, Lord, that you would do in us what needs to be done. Lord, I pray for those that know you that are worried about such things, that you would bring a peace and a comfort and direct our eyes right back to Jesus. Lord, for those that have known you or professed you and are playing games with the truth, would you bring a sobriety and a conviction and restore them? For those that don't know you, Lord, would you do for them what you've done for us and bring that revelation, open their eyes to the truth of who you are, Lord Jesus, and why you are King and Lord, please, Father, we pray that you would do for us what we can't do for ourselves. We pray, Lord, that you would use this time to equip us to be able to encourage one another, especially as we see the day approaching. Please, Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone agrees, says, Amen. Amen. It used to be in the 20th century that bank tellers bank clerks were trained to identify counterfeits by doing one basic thing. <laughs> that one thing was to only handle the real thing. Mm -hmm. They would just be given tons of different notes of different denominations, and they would hold these things, they would observe these things, they would count these things over and over and over and over and over again, so that when a counterfeit came in, they go, wait, this doesn't feel right. Now, of course, they have to do more than that now because the counterfeiters have gotten more sophisticated. But there's a principle there that's important. And that principle is that if we want to not be deceived by what's a lie, we need to rightly be handling what is true. We need to know what God says. And we're in a situation here in, in 2 Thessalonians where, if you remember from 1 Thessalonians, the, 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 the church there, the, the Christians in Thessalonica, young church, new church, they were going through some difficult things, some persecution, and they were wondering, oh man, uh, did we, you know, are, 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 
did we miss the, or is, it, is, is, the, is the coming of Jesus not happened yet? And so now we're in trouble, especially those who have died before the Lord's come back. Do, do those people who've died, do they miss the kingdom? And so they, they were worried that they died too soon. They died before Jesus could return. And so they were worried about what the implications were of that. And now in 2 Thessalonians, just a, really probably a matter of weeks or months after 1 Thessalonians was written, that the situation is things have gotten a bit worse in that persecution has increased. But also, now they're thinking, did Jesus already come? Did, we, did Jesus already come and we've missed it? And so they're worried about that. And it's interesting because he, here's a church that has only been in existence. These are mostly, these are new believers. These are people who have just come to faith. A group of people who have only been Christians for a matter of weeks or months. And we have an indication that Paul is dealing with them or teaching them some of these most difficult doctrines that we could think of. In fact, in fact we know that he did this because he says in verse 5, doesn't he? He says, oh man, what do I do with my glasses? <laughs> He says, John, put your glasses on. No, he doesn't say that. What he says is, do you not remember that when I still was with you, I told you these things? So Paul took the time to explain these, these difficult doctrines about the second coming of Jesus to them and how there's a hope in that. And people were taking those doctrines and twisting them. Now, when we look at this, it's, it's tempting. In fact, I've heard this this section taught in such a way that, the, that when you hear it, you just think, oh man, oh no, and you're fearing the Lord's return, and that is not what God's wanting to do. That is not what this is written for. This is not so that believers are afraid of the return of Jesus. It's so that believers are hopeful about the return of Jesus. And so we need to understand what's going on. But there is included in this a warning about counterfeits. Not counterfeit money, but counterfeit teachers, counterfeit prophets, and eventually, he'll talk about a counterfeit Christ. Mm. And so we need to understand that there is such a thing as a count, there are such things as counterfeits. In fact, the warning against counterfeits is almost in every single New Testament epistle. That's usually what inspired the writing of the New Testament epistles, was some bad teaching had crept in, some false prophecy had crept in, the apostles hear about it, they think we have to correct that, and so they send a letter to correct that. And so we have to be willing and open to learn of these things without doing two things. One is we don't want to kind of be dismissive. We don't want to say, oh yeah, that was then, that doesn't really apply to us. We're more intelligent than that, we can all read, we're not as easily deceived. That's, that's an error. We can, just as, we can be deceived just as easy as anybody else. But the other error we can make is where we have evil suspicions of everyone. Anyone who believes something slightly different than us, we go, look out for them. And we have evil suspicions. Neither of these things is healthy. We want to go back to what God's word says and say, Lord, help us to be established by what your word says, that that hope would be real and true in us. So let's look at this. I'm going to give you three main things about counterfeits today. The first is this in verses 1 and 2. Let's talk about the presence of counterfeits in the church. Paul talks about this situation here. He says, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together uh, to him. And at the end of verse 3, he talks about how that these guys were concerned that the day of Christ had already come. Now, this is one of the things about counterfeits, counterfeit teachers specifically, is they're often distorting certain aspects of Christ's return. They want to twist things. They want to take things that are difficult to understand or things that are, are speculative and treat those things as equal with what God said clearly. And that's a dangerous thing. You've got to be careful of that. 
Now, I say that coming from a, a church background or coming from a, being a part of a group of churches that values eschatology or teaching on the end times, that we don't flinch away talk, from talking about these things. We think these are good things to talk about because the Scripture talks about these things. But I've experienced, even within our own movement, where people do go to that one extreme of, of kind of having evil suspicions of anybody who believes that the timing of the rapture is a different time. And we have to be careful with stuff like this. So we have to make sure that we're not being, made ourselves, making ourselves susceptible to those who would want to take the end time stuff and twist it. That's interesting. Uh, probably an obvious example of this within the church was uh, a group that we now call Jehovah's, or call themselves Jehovah's Witnesses. You guys ever had them come knocking at your door? Yeah. Okay. Committed people, nice people, deceived people. Now, they started by, with a guy named, uh, whose last name was Russell uh, back in, uh, in the 1800s, late 1800s. And they actually, had, uh, they actually were part of kind of mainstream Christianity, uh, more or less, as they were developing uh, this or, or thinking more and more about this sort of end times philosophy, this end times theology. They took it to a point where they actually started believing things and teaching things that were way off base. And then as they be began to get a following, they began to then even twist doctrines about who God was. In fact, they got to a point where actually not Russell who started, but the person who, well, Russell who started it first said that uh, Jesus would come back and he named a date, I think it was 1897. Jesus didn't come back in 1897. He goes, oh, wrong calculation. Jesus is coming back in 1914. And then he died in 1914, passed. And so the person who took his place ended up saying, oh, actually, Jesus did come back. It was just invisible. Nobody saw it. Yeah. Now, you laugh. You laugh. But I'll tell you, this is what happens when we don't stick to what God says and we don't keep the main thing the main thing. And I know churches that, and Christians that have better soteriology, that is, they understand salvation truth better, and they have good theology properly, they understand who God is better. Whereas the Jehovah's Witnesses, of course, don't worship Jesus as God, which they should, and they have all kinds of other ideas about salvation that are wrong. But I know groups that have good theology, and yet they get into eschatology, and they make an overemphasis of it, and they get into error. And so we need to be aware of this thing. Sometimes this is kind of how these things happen, how these counterfeits get in the church. But also if you look at verse 2, especially the last part of, of verse 2, Paul says, he says, I don't want you to be shaken. Notice he says, either by spirit or by word or by letter. Now what he's referring to here are all modes, what we might call modes of prophetic communication. When he says by spirits, the idea that, that uh, someone's coming saying, thus says the Lord, or speaking the name of God, possibly doing miracles to prove that. We'll talk more about that in a little bit. When he talks about coming by word, this could be a reference of just saying, here's what God says. He just gives a prophetic word. Or it also could be uh, this idea that he's saying, well, I believe Paul said this. If you see here, Paul said this, so it must mean this. And he's kind of misinterpreting God's word or what, what Paul had said. Or by letter, it could be that he's doing that. He's someone who's coming and misinterpreting what the Scripture says or what Paul has said. Or bringing a false letter. There's a lot of false letters that began to circulate from about the mid-first century uh, that were, had heresies in them, wrong teachings in them. But the point is, there, there's a miscommunication or a misuse of good things. A misuse of prophetic communication. 
And Paul's really clear that we need to be aware of these guys. We need to watch out for these guys when they start teaching us things that don't jive with Scripture. This is what the Bible says in Galatians chapter 1. Paul writes, Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. Pretty straightforward, isn't it? We read this verse not too long ago. I'm going to read from the New Living Translation, 1 John chapter 4, where John writes, the Apostle writes, he says, Dear friends, do not believe everyone who claims to speak by the Spirit. You must test them to see if the Spirit they have comes from God. For there are many false prophets in the world. If someone claims to be a prophet and does not acknowledge the truth about Jesus, that person is not from God. Now here's how we test. Notice this, listen. He says, we apostles belong to God, and those who know God listen to us. If they do not belong to God, they do not listen to us. That is how we know if someone has the spirit of truth or the spirit of deception. So the way we test all prophetic utterances, whether it's someone who, who is trying to do a miracle in the name of God, or someone who says, I'm speaking a specific word in the name of God, or someone who's teaching God's word, we go back to Scripture itself and we test it, which is what you guys should do with me every Sunday. You should go back to the Scripture and say, is this actually what God says? And so this is what Paul's talking about. He's talking about there, there are, in, in our presence, in the church, there have always been, there always will be, until Jesus comes back, counterfeits uh, among us. Now, again, let's not have evil suspicions. Uh, if you're a guest here today, we're glad you're here. We don't think you're counterfeits. We're not assuming that. Don't worry. But there's this reality that we should be aware of these things. Again, look at verse 2 again. Because this is what happens in the presence of, uh, or, or when counterfeits are in the presence of the church. Paul says, Here, here's what happens. In fact, he's trying to encourage the Thessalonians not to be too shaken by this. He says, um, he says, we ask you, verse, then verse 2, he says, not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled. Because this is what happens when these false teachers come in, when these false prophets come in. They cause confusion and anxiety among God's people. And this is really important. Because when it comes to us who are believers in Jesus, those of us who have received the truth of who Christ is, we've, we've repented from our sins, we've turned to, to, uh, to God, put our faith in Jesus, we've been, what Jesus says, born again, the Holy Spirit's made us alive, so we have this relationship with God. Those of us who have this, we are susceptible to confusion and anxiety. And so the thing is, especially when it comes to this kind of end time stuff, because it gets pretty heavy, it's going to get pretty heavy in this chapter. And so it's really important that we recognize that, that our, our goal should be with one another to encourage each other and the hope that we have in Jesus. What Paul calls the blessed hope. Listen to this. In Titus chapter 2, verse 13, he says, We are looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Does that sound like someone who's afraid of Jesus' return? No, he's looking forward to it. He can't wait for Jesus to come back. He longs for that. So when we read about these things, we read about the end times, we read about the return of Jesus, if we're Jesus followers, if we love God, if we know that we've been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, if we believe this, we should go, Lord, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. 
Look what he says in Romans. Paul says this about scriptures in general. He says, such things were written in scriptures long ago to teach us, and the scriptures give us hope and encouragement as we wait patiently for God's promises to be fulfilled. Now, this is not some sort of like positive thinking and, you know, you know let's just kind of think the best and no negative thoughts. That's rubbish. When, when, when Paul writes this in, in Romans, he's talking to people who were probably beginning to feel a bit of pressure for their faith. Definitely when Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica, they're being severely persecuted for their faith. He's not talking about, hey, don't, don't ever say anything negative. Don't expect anything bad. No, that's also false teaching. He's saying this, when it comes to Jesus' return, it's our hope, not our fear. So for believers, we should be hoping in the Lord's return, not fearing the Lord's return. Are you guys following me? This is really important. Now, what Paul wants to do is he wants to then kind of correct some of the error about this, that these guys have gotten into. Specifically, he wants to deal with this idea that Jesus has already come. And so he brings up this issue of who we might identify as the Antichrist. That's what John calls him in 1 John 4. So look, look at verse 3. He starts off by saying very clearly, let no one deceive you by any means. So when it comes to talking about the return of Jesus and making sure that people have an understanding about the return of Jesus, he starts with the phrase, let no one deceive you, which is exactly how Jesus began to answer the disciples' questions when they asked him about his second coming. First thing he says is, let no one deceive you. Now, part of that is because, we, as we just mentioned, sometimes false teachers, false prophets want to twist these issues of end times. But also it's because one of the things that we're going to see as we get closer to the Lord's return is more and more people turning away from the truth. It's a sad reality, but it is a reality. And so Paul says, look, make sure no one deceives you. Know that deception is a possibility. Know that people are going to try to deceive you, but let no one deceive you. Be aware of what's really true. He says, for this is why. He says, for that day will not come unless the fallen away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, that is the son of perdition. Some of your versions say the man of lawlessness, which I think is probably a better translation. In fact, he's called, Paul refers to him later on as the lawless one. I think it's in verse 8. That, that term, the son of perdition, simply means the son of destruction. He's He's bent on destroying others' lives, and listen, he is destined for destruction. Now, here's what's interesting about this. Paul seems to be saying that before the Lord returns, there's going to come a time when there's going to be this falling away. The, the Greek word is apostasia, where we get the word apostasy. And so this seems to indicate as those who, who at least profess to be followers of Jesus and then decided they wanted another road. You might say these are those who have defected from the faith. Now, we can, we can debate about whether or not they were actually born again. I don't think they would be. But this is what he's talking about. Those who profess to have faith in Jesus and defect into another thing. They might even still keep the name of Christianity, but they're defecting into something that doesn't fit the Jesus of the Bible. And so Paul seems to indicate this is going to happen first, and this is going to come, listen, this is going to happen when this man of destruction, this man of perdition, this man of lawlessness, when he's finally revealed. Now, it's important for us to understand this because we want to talk now about really not just the presence of counterfeits in the church, but the characteristic of this counterfeit Christ. 
And the first thing we see in these verses is that he's going to attempt to dethrone God so he can enthrone himself. So he talks about this, this, the fact that he's going to come first and there's going to be this great falling away. In other words, he's going to attract those who are defecting from the church. He will be the final reason why they defect from the church. Now, if you look at verse 7 for a second, notice in verse 7, it says specifically that the mystery of lawlessness, that's the revelation of this man of lawlessness, Remember, mystery in the New Testament doesn't mean something you can't know, but something that needs to be revealed to be known. The mystery of lawlessness is already at work. In other words, as John says in 1 John 4, the spirit of Antichrist is already on the move. So the demonic influence behind this counterfeit Christ is already moving, has been from the time that Christ ascended to heaven, will be until the time that Christ comes back. But at the very end of days, there's going to be this kind of personification of that. A man who will probably be possessed by Satan himself, who will then kind of say, here's what you've been looking for. All those old-fashioned Christians, they don't know what they're talking about. This is the worship you need to have. And they're going to pull people away. Even people that you would swear were really Christians. Now here's what he's going to do. When he's revealed, here's how he's going to be revealed. It says in verse 4, who, will, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself to be that he is God. Now, what he's referencing there is, is just what it sounds like, this picture of, if you think about the temple, this is, I, I think there are some believers that would say, uh, no, this is a reference to uh, he'll, he'll show up in the midst of the Christian church because the Bible says that we collectively are the temple of God. I think this is a reference to the Jewish temple. It's my conviction this is a reference to the Jewish temple. That seems to carry on with what we see in the book of Revelation if we take the book of Revelation at, at face value. But the point is that he's going to show himself up and say, here, I'm the one you're meant to be worshiping. Don't worship this God of the Bible. I'm actually the God that you need to be worshiping. Now, here's what's interesting about this. What's interesting about this is that there's been actually many patterns of people who do this. So, so here's what we read in Daniel, in the book of Daniel, the Old Testament book of Daniel, right? Daniel uh, prophesies about this king, this evil king, who will come on the scene and do this very thing. He says, the king will do as he pleases. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will say unheard of things against the god of gods. That would be the god of the Bible. He will be successful until the time of wrath is completed for what has been determined must take place. He will show no regard for the gods of his ancestors or for the one desired by women, nor will he regard any god, but will exalt himself above them all. Now, we know that uh, Antiochus IV, he was a Syrian king in about the 2nd century B.C. Antiochus IV, sometimes you might have heard that he's called Antiochus Epiphanes. It's kind of a title he gave himself. That, that we know that he was disturbed by uh, the Jews and thought, I'm going to show them who really is in charge, not their God. And so he actually desecrated the temple. Uh, he went in there, he put up a statue of Zeus. Uh, slaughtered a pig on the temple, completely desecrated the temple, which created or which provoked what's called the Maccabean Revolt. 
If you guys know anything about the Apocrypha, the first, there's the first and second Maccabees are these books that are in the Catholic Bible, um, and, and they're, they're historically accurate. We just don't believe they're inspired. But this was all about what happened there. That this, this Syrian king had done this, he defiles the temple. It's what they called the abomination, or what Daniel called the abomination of desolation, or the abomination that makes desolate. Now, here, here's, what we're gonna, we're gonna, here's what we read in, in, uh, from Jesus in Matthew 24, right? And remember, when Jesus says this, uh, uh, what's his name? Epiphany. <laughs> Epiphanies, Antiochus Epiphanies had already been there 200 years before this. So here's what Jesus says. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Now, here's what's interesting. What's interesting is Daniel predicts an event that the Jews saw being fulfilled in the second century before Christ, so 200 years before Christ, right? Then Jesus is actually, there's going to be another fulfillment of this coming soon. And he says it's going to be so clear and so obvious when you see it happens, flee the hills, okay? Now, there's no reason in Matthew 24 not to take these words at face value. None. So, some Bible teachers want to, to sort of kind of figuratize this thing and, and sort of spiritualize things away, but there's actually no reason textually to do that. And so there is a time when this comes to take place, when what, what Paul's talking about here about this false Christ will actually take place, and when it does, listen, it will be public and it will be obvious. Now, why am I saying this? I'm saying this because one of the mistakes that we can make is we can get so into, ooh, is this going to happen? How's that going to happen? When's this going to happen? We get really excited about the rumors we hear about a third temple being built in Israel. They're, they're actually true rumors. They are moving that direction. If you go to Jerusalem, you can visit the Temple Institute. They have all the tools already made. They're ready for a temple to be built. I've been there, I've stood on the Mount of Olives and looked right at the Temple Mount and there's this east gate, which is where supposedly Jesus would, would have walked in. And right above that is this, the, 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 uh, you have the Dome of the Rock here, which is the Muslim Mosque. And then you also have the, what's called the Dome of the Laws or the Dome of the Spirits. And there's just about enough room to build another temple there if you don't have a court of the Gentiles, which is interesting. Now, 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 the thing is, okay, I don't know if that's going to happen in our lifetime. I don't know if any of this stuff is actually going to happen just like this. I don't know. But Paul says this. Here's what we can know. Jesus seems to see the same, say the same thing. When it does happen, there's going to be no doubt. This is why it's a bit pointless for us to go, there's the Antichrist, there's the Antichrist, there's the Antichrist. Now, recognize Antichrist, plural, little a, people who are, under the, who are under the influence, who have the same kind of characteristics, that's one thing. But man, I'll tell you what, since I've been alive, since I've been a Christian for 30 years, I think someone has assumed that every American president is the Antichrist. Now, now, okay, I can understand why. But I mean, seriously, this is not helpful. Because what Jesus is, or what Paul's wanting us to see, and I think it's the same thing Jesus wants us to see, is look, when this stuff happens, it's going to be obvious. So guess what? We don't need to speculate. We don't need to speculate. We need to walk with Jesus, full stop. Amen. Don't be pulled aside to these different speculations. Now, now it gets even heavier, because in verses 6 to 8, we get to stuff that's, man, so much debate has happened about this. Hopefully we can do this succinctly and clearly. Here we go. Verse 6. 
Paul says, and now you know, so the Thessalonians, they knew, now you know what is restraining, that is restraining this false Christ, this counterfeit Christ, that he may be revealed in his own time, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way, and then the lawless one will be revealed. Now here's what's interesting. What's interesting, it's obvious from the context that the Thessalonians knew what Paul was talking about. They knew who or what was restraining, keeping this counterfeit Christ from coming on the scene. Here's what's also interesting. Nobody else does. And, and I mean that in, in all due respect. Here's the, here's the main, the three main ideas of who's doing this restraining work, okay? Or what's doing this restraining work. One of the ideas is, is this is a reference to the Holy Spirit. And so you, you see, if you have a New King James Bible like mine, uh, the word he is uh, capitalized in that verse. He who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And so they see this as a reference to Antichrist, that that's who this is referring to. I'm sorry, to uh, the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is restraining the Antichrist from coming, right? Now, I'll be honest, this is what I've always been taught my whole Christian experience. And I'll be honest, I don't think that's probably the best guess. And I'll tell you why. Because why wouldn't Paul just say the Holy Spirit? Why would he just use a personal pronoun? In fact, what's also interesting is one of these pronouns is not a personal pronoun. It can be the generic pronoun. It can be translated it. In fact, also, if you look in the context, he says in verse, uh, uh, in verse 6, right? He says, and now you know what is restraining. So I don't think it is really a reference to the Holy Spirit, necessarily. Here's another example. Some say it's Michael the archangel. They say it's Michael the archangel because he's the one who's supposed to be the protector of Israel. So the idea is he's protecting Israel. Maybe he hasn't done such a good job, I don't know. But he's been protecting Israel until the very end times. And then basically he'll be removed. And that's when you see this final judgment happening in Jerusalem. And then God himself has to intervene. Some say that. I don't know. Interesting. Another is, and this, is, this, was, the, um, this was the opinion of Tertullian, who was a second century church father. He said, this is actually a reference to the Roman Empire. And the reason Paul uses such um, generic language, it, he, is because these guys were already under massive persecution. If someone would have picked up the letter and said, hey, he's now slamming the Roman Empire, that persecution might have got worse. And so he's using generic language to keep the persecution from getting worse. Interesting. Here's what's interesting as well. Uh, Augustine, or Augustine, depending on how you want to say his name, the uh, fourth century theologian, famous theologian, here's what he said about this. He said, I have no idea what this verse means. <laughs> now, 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 seriously, you know we don't flinch. We don't try to shy away. Hopefully even this, you know, we're not shying away from difficult Bible passages. But I do think it's important for us to be honest about things that are very vague, that we don't actually know. We just don't know. In fact, this is what we do know. Here's what Jesus said. When his own disciples were wanting to get some, give me some end times answers, Jesus. We know you've you're resurrected now. The kingdom must be coming now. Here's how Jesus answered them. Jesus said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons, which the Father has put in his own authority. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. 
So, so here, here's really what, what I think Jesus is, is wanting to say, or what Paul's, I'm sorry, is wanting to say. Paul's wanting to say, listen, here's what we know. We don't know more beyond this. Here's what you need to focus on, making disciples, being full of God's Holy Spirit, sharing the gospel, making disciples. Hey, are, are, are you excited? Do you think we're getting closer to Jesus' return? Well, then let's get busy. Because there's a lot of people out there who don't know Jesus, and we're going to just confuse the crud out of them if we just talk about end time stuff. Let's talk about Jesus. He's our message. Interesting. Here's how Paul ends this. And this is probably, I think, the thing that gives me most comfort. The thing that often I'd worry about when I first started studying this stuff was one as I thought, I'm not clever enough to get my head around it. It took me many, many, many years. I was a pastor for about 15 years before I realized nobody has their head around all this stuff. Because I was taught from a very specific direction, and I assumed everyone agreed on this, until the third time I was teaching the book of Revelation. That's right, three times I've taught through the whole book of Revelation, verse by verse. And the third time, you know what I realized? Nobody agrees on this stuff. There's some general stuff that's very clear, and there's other stuff that's just speculation. But here's what we do know for sure. Look at the last part of verse 8. That this... Man of this lawless one, when he's revealed, here's what's going to happen. Whom the Lord, this is Jesus, the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. Here's a characteristic of the Antichrist we need to remember. Jesus is going to wipe him out. Now this is what we need to, this is really important for us to understand because some of us, listen, we're tempted to worship a Jesus. It's a bit mamby-pamby. We, 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 we worship almost an effeminate Jesus who's just nice. And we love the fact that John can hold his, his head to Jesus' chest like we see in the Gospels. Now, all that is absolutely true. He is that gentle. He is that kind. The Jesus of the Bible, God the Son, God the Father, God the Spirit, our whole Godhead, the Jesus revealed in the Jesus of the Bible, listen, is eternally kind and affectionate towards us. That's completely true. But also, he's a warrior. And when he comes back, he's not going to flinch to bring this judgment. Now, this is meant to be a comfort for us. Because guess what that means? It means we don't have to take judgment into our own hands. It means we don't have to figure everything out. It means we don't have to try to force justice onto the earth. We pursue justice, but we know we don't have to force it. Listen to this. Book of Revelation, chapter 19, verse 5. Now out of his mouth, this is speaking of the returning Jesus, now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. That is our sweet Jesus. You know what that means? That means he's got our back. You see, here, here's the thing. One of the reasons why we get so uppity, we get so, is because we don't want to suffer. Because we don't want to be victims of injustice. But you know what we see in Jesus? We see in Jesus saying, I've come, I am God's chosen king, I am God the Son, and I've come that they may have life that more abundantly. And to prove it to you, I'm going to be let myself be beaten, rejected, and crucified. And then I'm going to rise from the dead 
to prove that I am who I said I am. He calls us to follow in his footsteps, to be willing to be rejected, beaten, and even in some cases crucified. Why? Because he wants people to know who he is he wants people to turn back to him. And he's saying, you can trust me. No matter how much injustice is done against you because you follow me, you can trust me. I'm going to make sure nobody gets away with it. Justice. He's going to deal with it. This is good news, people. Amen. See, here's what religion says. Religion says, I'm right, and if you don't believe it, I'll kill you. But Christianity says, I'm right, and if you don't believe it, you can kill me. You can kill me. I'll die for this because my Lord died for this. And he's paid the price so I know that I'm forgiven. And he's made a way so I know I'm going to see him forever. And when he comes back, he'll bring perfect justice. This is what Paul's saying is our great hope. God's going to bring justice through Christ when he returns. Now quickly, the last thing I want you to see, and this is maybe the most sobering thing, and that is the seduction of the counterfeit Christ. And I think this is especially, if, you, if you're here today and you're not yet a believer, if Jesus stuff is stuff you're just learning to, first of all, let me say, this is a really heavy Sunday to come, so. <laughs> this is pretty intense, I admit. But I really would ask you to really pay attention here because this is the most sobering aspect of the section. Paul writes, The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders. Now this is important. It's important because Paul is wanting these readers to know, look, when the lawless one comes, it will be public, it'll be obvious, but it will be miraculous. In other words, he's going to do real miracles, or at least supernatural manipulations. This is really important to me, and, and I think I mean, we need to make sure we keep this in the context of, of both 1 and 2 Thessalonians, because we talked about a couple weeks ago that the reality of, of, the, 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 of the Spirit's work in the church, that we believe in the supernatural, that God does do supernatural stuff today, and we should not despise that. We grieve the Spirit, we despise the fact that our God is a supernatural God who does supernatural stuff today. But the enemy can do supernatural stuff. And when the Antichrist comes, when the counterfeit Christ comes, he will do supernatural stuff. So supernatural stuff by itself is not a sufficient proof of truth. Do you follow me? And man, I'll tell you what, I've had conversations with, with churched people who believe stuff that is contrary to Scripture. They believe stuff that undermines the gospel of grace because the person who told them this did some supposed miracle. Maybe it was sleight of hand. Maybe it was manipulating. Maybe it was um, a real miracle, but it was from Satan. But the point is, we need to understand that this is what will happen. When the Antichrist comes, when the counterfeit Christ comes, he's going to utilize what I'll call the false miraculous. And we're tempted in this. Paul had to correct the Corinthian church, not just because their misuse of the gifts, but in 2 Corinthians, he had to correct them because of how susceptible they were to these kinds of things. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 11, but I fear that somehow your pure and undivided devotion to Christ will be corrupted. Just as Eve was deceived by the cunning ways of the serpent, 
You happily put up with what, whatever anyone tells you. Even if they preach a different Jesus than the one we preach, or a different kind of spirit than the one you've received, or a different kind of gospel than the one you've believed. Now, I, I, I don't like naming names because I can be wrong. And one of the things that's tricky about naming names, especially with these kinds of issues, is you, you, can, have, you can name a name of someone who, at least on paper, is very orthodox. And, and they may have said something three, four, five years ago that was totally obviously bogus, but now they wouldn't say the same thing. And so I really don't like naming names. But I feel like I need to give an example because it's something that I'm really wrestling with personally. See, I really like Bethel's music. Mm. I do too. Amen. But I, I listened to Bill Johnson, and this was a few years ago, I admit. And because some good friends of mine, actually some people in the church, Stephen and Katie used to be in the church, were planning to go to their school of ministry, the school of supernatural ministry is what it's called. And they didn't sit totally well with me, but I didn't know much about Bill Johnson. So when they asked me for a recommendation, I go, yeah, I'm happy to recommend you guys, but I don't know much about him. Something didn't sit well. I mean, just investigate it, and as long as there's not something bogus, even if his view of the works of the Spirit or the supernatural is different than mine, if he's believing the real gospel, preaching the real gospel, if that's where you want to go, I'll give you a recommendation. And so when I looked it up, I found quite a few sound bites of him saying things that were really bogus. And I found the one that was, to me, the most worrying and I tracked down the entire message in its context. And in this message, this is what Bill Johnson said. Now, again, I, I want to pr put a proviso. He could have repented of this. But here's what he said. And, and, and this is in context. I listened to the whole 45-minute message. He said, there's a theology out there that says that God calls you to suffer. And he was teaching on Galatians 1. And he says, but that's not the gospel. He said, so anyone who teaches a theology that says God's plan for you is to suffer, let him be accursed. He says, everyone says, woo. He says, I'm glad I finally said that. That is a false gospel. And it's scary because these kinds of things are happening and because supernatural stuff's happening at, at Bethel. Because on paper, the gospel seems right. People buy into some of this stuff. Again, I want supernatural stuff to happen. I want to see God do the miraculous. But we have to be discerning about this stuff. And I just think, just because someone does something supernatural, means it's okay. Now, I hope I'm wrong, because I really like their music. So I hope I'm wrong. But I'll tell you, I saw this thing in context, and I've not yet seen any kind of rebuttal of this. Guys, listen. The closer we get to the Lord's return, the busier the spirit of Antichrist is going to get, and the more discerning we're going to need to be. I have friends, uh, I've known, I've had friends who were still in the Catholic Church, that I really believe are born again. They're my brothers and sisters in Christ. But they would admit they are born again in spite of the Catholic Church. 
because the Catholic doctrine, I'm not, this is not me making this up or being overcritical. Read the Council of Trent. They've never recounted the Council of Trent. And it says what you and I believe, it curses us to hell because we believe in the grace of God. And yet we're promoting doing ministry with Catholics. That is, is this, even Billy Graham's association does this kind of stuff. It is concerning to me. Again, I'm not trying to be overly harsh. I really, I've been too harsh in the past. I almost didn't want to say any of this, but I think really I have to because we live in a day and age where we're not being discerning. In fact, one of the things he's going to do, look at verse 10. It says, here's what's going to happen. He's going to do this working with lion signs and wonders when he comes. And it says, and, and, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, and this is why these people believe it, because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. There's not a single one of us that doesn't need to be corrected. I've been a Christian for over 30 years. There's some stuff that I was taught when I was first a, a Christian that I hold on to tighter now than I ever have. There's other stuff where I realize, eh, I've got to be a bit loose, and some stuff I've had to flat out reject. Amen. And I'm sure it's going to continue until I see Jesus face to face. I'm thankful that I'm a part of a movement with Calvary Chapel with all its flaws. They're committed to teaching verse by verse through the whole Bible, which sometimes they expose themselves because they teach stuff you're going, dude, that's totally out of context. <laughs> but at least they're teaching the scripture so that you can test them. At least we can be tested because we're teaching the scripture, right? Folks, listen, part of our salvation, the way God is saving us, and, and, and here salvation, think of salvation as God getting us from the point we're justified to the point we're glorified. Think of like sanctification. The way God does that is through the love of the truth. Jesus prayed in John 17, Lord, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Again, this is not just plain Bible knowledge, but it's, it's, it's believing that God has spoken through Jesus and exalting him as the word incarnate. This is why Jesus was crucified. Listen to this in John chapter 8. Jesus talk, speaking to the religious leaders of his day. He says, if God were your father, you would love me because I have come to you from God. I am not here on my own, but he sent me. And later on when they're going, oh, you're not from God. How could you be from God? You're talking about Abraham and Abraham rejoicing your day. He says to him, I'll make it really clear. He says, I'll tell you the truth. Before Abraham was even born, I am. What is that? A claim to deity. So if we don't want to worship Jesus as God, follow Jesus as God, submit to Jesus as God, we're opening ourselves up to deception. This is why, listen, you know, all of us know we have sin. And, and none of us here is perfect. We will not be perfected until we see him face to face. But we all should be patiently enduring with each other and calling one another to repentance to say, i got to turn from trying to lead my own life and follow after Jesus. This is exactly why, listen, this is exactly why people get deceived. They don't want to follow Jesus. They want a Jesus genie who will do what, he want, what they want when they want it, not a Lord and King that he actually is. In fact, this is what he says in verses 11 and 12. 
it's for this reason that God will send them a strong delusion. That is, the unbelievers at that time, when the Antichrist shows up, they'll send them a strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Do you understand what he's saying there? Paul's saying that it's part of God's judgment. The Antichrist is part of God's judgment on people who are unwilling to repent. That's what he's saying. It's heavy stuff, isn't it? It's hard to hear, isn't it? In fact, this is the kind of stuff that I fear that we could be videotaped it. The sound bites are going to be really, really horrible if someone wants to hack those sound bites to pieces. But this is, this is the, the clearest, most obvious thing that Paul is talking about here. When, when I say, especially this last, these last few verses, 9 through 12, I want to be clear here. I've not yet read a commentator who doesn't basically believe the same basic thing I said there. Well, we can believe all kinds of different things about when the Lord's going to come back and how that might look and if there's actually going to be a tribulation time or not a tribulation time. We can believe all kinds of different things about that. But everyone agrees that there is this Antichrist who's going to come on the scene and that's part of God's judgment because we've refused to believe the truth. Listen, a lot of you are here today and you're thinking, hey, I avoid the big sins. I don't sleep around. I don't get drunk or do drugs. I don't steal. No, the biggest sin is not receiving the love of the truth. It's not recognizing that God has sent His only begotten Son so that you could know exactly who He is and so that you could be forgiven of your sins and so you could be made right with Him and so you could finally have the King that you really want. The whole reason the West is polarizing right now is because we're all longing for a king. Send us a strong man who can lead us. Send us someone who can, who can actually get us out of our mess. God already did. Amen. His name is Jesus. Amen. Accept no substitutes. Settle for no counterfeits. Jesus is Lord. He's worthy to be trusted. His return is our hope. No matter how bad things get before he comes back, trust him. Trust him. Father, I pray that you would help us to trust in Jesus whom you've sent. That we would entrust our lives to his care. <clears throat> Lord, we believe that you're for us and not against us because that's what your word says. We believe that we have eternal life because you said who has a son has life. That's what your word says. We believe that we should not rule our own lives. We should not trust ourselves, but we should trust in you who raises the dead because that's what your word says. Lord, we want to take you at your word. We want to love one another fervently from a pure heart because that's what your word says. Lord, we want to lay down our lives for your sake in the Gospels because that's what your word says. We want to pick up our cross and follow Jesus because that's what your word says. Lord, help us to accept no counterfeits.